Chapter 5, Part 3 of American Men of Action by Burton Egbert Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Statesman, Part 3. With the coming of the Civil War, another triumvirate emerges to control the destinies of the nation. Thaddeus Stevens, Charles Sumner, and William Henry Seward. Stevens and Seward had been introduced to politics by the ineffectual and absurd anti-Masonic party which flitted across the stage in the early thirties. In 1851, Massachusetts rebuked Daniel Webster for his supposed surrender to the slavery party made in hope of attaining the presidency by placing Sumner in his seat in the Senate and retiring him to private life where he still remained the most commanding figure in the country. Seward was already in the Senate had spoken in reply to Webster, and assumed the leadership which Webster forfeited. In the House, too, was Stevens, who soon gained prominence by a certain vitriolic force which was in him, and these three men labored unceasingly for the defeat of the South. Indeed, for more than its defeat, for payment, to the last drop, for the sins it had committed. They were bound together by party ties and in other ways, but most closely of all by a hatred of slavery, which, with Stevens and Sumner, mounted at times to fanaticism and led them into the errors always awaiting the fanatic. Thaddeus Stevens, the oldest of the three, had been born in Vermont, but removed to Pennsylvania at the age of twenty-two, and began to practice law there. In 1831, he was one of the moving spirits in the formation of the anti-Masonic party, which fancied it saw, in the spread of masonry, a grave danger to the Republic. Two years later, Stevens was chosen a member of the Pennsylvania legislature, but his career did not really begin until, in 1848, at the age of 57, he was elected a member of the National House of Representatives, where he soon took his place as the leader of the anti-slavery faction. From that time forward, he was unceasing in his warfare against slavery, frequently going to lengths where a few cared to follow, and which would seem to indicate that there was a trace of madness in the man. He developed an exaggerated and sentimental regard for the Negro, and grew radical and relentless toward the South. At the close of the war, he regarded the southern states as conquered territory, to be treated as such, and his ideas of treatment seemed to have been founded upon those of the Middle Ages. He wished to confiscate the property of all Confederates, endeavored to impeach President Johnson, who was trying to enforce a system of reconstruction which was at least better than that which Stevens advocated. For a time, he seemed to suffer from a very vertigo of hatred, which ate into his soul and destroyed him. The plan of reconstruction adopted by Congress was an embodiment of his ideas, but Johnson was acquitted of the charges Stevens brought against him, and Stevens' poison, as it were, turned in upon himself and killed him. His last request, that his body be buried in an obscure private cemetery, because public cemeteries excluded Negroes, shows the man's unbalanced condition the length to which his ideas had led him. Charles Sumner, who was to the Senate much what Stevens was to the House, although a larger and better balanced man, was a typical Bostonian and inheritor of the New England conscience, which of course meant that he was opposed through and through to slavery. He was a successful lawyer, and as his sentiments were well known, he was chosen to succeed Webster when the latter wavered on the anti-slavery question, and through some pledges of assistance to the South. There was never any doubt about Sumner's position. 
no sign of wavering or coquetting with the enemy, and in 1856 he was assaulted by a southern senator and so severely injured that three years passed before he could resume his seat. He did so in time to oppose any compromise with slavery or the slave power, which the threatening attitude of the South had almost scared the North into considering, and urged the immediate emancipation of the slaves. When this had been accomplished, his first thought was to make sure that the slaves would remain free, and he began the contest for Negro suffrage, as the only guarantee of Negro freedom, which he finally won. In the Reconstruction period following the war, he was inevitably an ally of Thaddeus Stevens, though the latter far surpassed him in vindictiveness toward the South. Let us not forget that the South had shown itself blind to its own interests when, as soon as reconstructed by Andrew Johnson, it had, state by state, adopted laws virtually enslaving the black man again. But for this fatuity, there would have probably have been no such feelings of vindictiveness at the North as soon developed there. Certainly, there would have been no excuse for such severity as was afterwards exhibited. So it is true, in a sense, that the South was itself to blame for the horrors of the Reconstruction period, and for the suspicion with which its good faith toward the Negro was for many years regarded. Sumner was not a vindictive man, and in his last years incurred a vote of censure from his own state for offering a bill to remove the names of battles of the Civil War from the Army Register and from the regimental colors of the United States. He practically died in harness in 1874. Looking back at him, one sees how much larger he looms than Stevens. One cannot but admire his courage and honesty of purpose. His public life was a continual struggle for the right, as he saw it, and remembering that, his faults need not trouble us. When Sumner arrived in the Senate, he found William H. Seward of New York already there. Seward, who had been admitted to the bar in 1822 at the age of 21, was carried into the New York legislature by the anti-Masonic wave of 1830. Eight years later, he was the Whig governor of the state, and in 1849 was sent to the Senate. There, he soon riveted attention by his rebuke of Webster for condoning the fugitive slave law, and caught the reins of party leadership as they fell from Webster's hands. It was then that he made his famous statement that the war against slavery was waged under a higher law than the Constitution, and that the fall of slavery was inevitable. In 1856, when the newly formed anti-slavery party, known as the Republican, met to name a national ticket, Seward was the logical candidate, but refused to allow his name to be considered, and the choice fell upon that brilliant adventurer, John C. Fremont. Fremont was, of course, defeated, and Seward continued to be the leader of Republican thought and the chief originator of Republican doctrine. Indeed, he was, in a sense, the Republican Party, so that, four years later, he seemed not only the logical but the inevitable choice of the party for president. His most formidable opponent was Abraham Lincoln of Illinois, who had been carefully working for the nomination and who was blessed with the shrewdest of campaign managers. Seward led on the first ballot, and would have won, but for the expert trading already referred to in the story of Lincoln's nomination. It was natural that Lincoln should offer him the state portfolio, and Seward accepted it. From the first to last, he held true to the president, and the services he rendered the country were second only to those of Lincoln himself. When Lincoln was killed, an attempt was also made to murder Seward, and was very nearly successful.
so nearly that for days seward lingered between life and death he recovered however to resume his place in johnson's cabinet over the new president he had great influence he had long been an advocate of mercy toward the south and he did much to persuade the president to the course he followed in restoring the southern states to the union without reference to the wishes of congress even john sherman pronounced the plan wise and judicious but stevens sumner and their powerful coterie in congress violently opposed it and seward came in for his share of the vituperation and bitter accusation which the plan called forth johnson's defeat closed his political career and the last years of his life were spent in travel the very cause of his downfall marks him as the greatest of the three for he placed justice above expediency and not even the attempt upon his life changed his feeling toward the south perhaps the wisdom of his judgment was never better exemplified than in his purchase from russia of the great territory known as alaska for the sum of seven million two hundred thousand dollars Alaska was regarded at the time as an icy desert of no economic value, but time has changed that estimate, and the discovery of gold there made it one of the richest of the country's possessions. Outside of Seward, Sumner, and Stevens, the most prominent public man of the time was Salmon P. Chase, an Ohioan who had for many years taken an important part in the anti-slavery controversy. Although sent to the Senate in 1849 as a Democrat, he left the party on the nomination of Pierce in 1852, when it stood committed to the support and extension of slavery. Three years later, he was elected governor of Ohio by the Republicans. He was Lincoln's Secretary of the Treasury and financed the country during its most trying period in a way that compelled the admiration even of his enemies. He served afterwards as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, dying in 1873. He was another man whose life was embittered by failure to attain the prize of the presidency. Three times he tried for it, in 1860, in 1864, and in 1868, but he never came within measurable distance of it, for he lacked the capacity for making friends and repelled rather than attracted by a studiously impressive demeanor a painful decorousness and an unbending dignity which was of course no true dignity at all but merely a bad imitation of it in a word he lacked the saving sense of humor the quality which endeared abraham lincoln to the whole nation another ohioan who loomed large in the history of the time was john sherman a lawyer like all the rest a member of congress since eighteen fifty five not at first a great opponent of slavery but drawn into the battle by his allegiance to the republican party forming an alliance with thaddeus stevens and collaborating with him in the production of the reconstruction act he was appointed secretary of the treasury by president hayes in eighteen seventy six and his great work for the country was done in that office in re-establishing the credit which the civil war had shaken he also was bitten by the presidential bacillus and was a candidate for the nomination at three conventions but each time fell short of the goal once when he had it seemingly within his grasp a stern forceful capable man he left his impress upon the times of the men who guided the fortunes of the confederacy only two need be mentioned here jefferson davis and alexander h stevens for rich as the confederacy was in generals it was undeniably poor in statesmen the golden age of the south had departed with john c calhoun passed away the last really commanding figure among dixie statesmen and from him to jefferson davis is a long step downward
Davis's early life was romantic enough. Born in 1808 in Kentucky, of a father who had served in the Revolution, appointed to the National Military Academy by President Monroe, graduating there in 1828, and serving through the Black Hawk War, then abruptly resigning from the Army to elope with the daughter of Colonel Zachary Taylor, and settling near Vicksburg, Mississippi, to embark in cotton planting drawn irresistibly into politics and sent to congress by resigning to accept command of the first mississippi rifles and serving with great distinction through the war with mexico and finally in eighteen forty seven sent to the senate which was davis's history up to the time he became involved in the maelstrom of the slavery question from the first he was an ardent advocate of the state rights theory of government and the right of secession and for thirteen years he defended these theories in the senate gradually emerging as the most capable advocate the South possessed. That fiery and impulsive people, looking always for a hero to worship, found one in Jefferson Davis, and he soon gained an immense prestige among them. On January 9, 1861, his state seceded from the Union, and he withdrew from the Senate. Before he reached home, he was elected commander-in-chief of the Army of the Mississippi, and a few days later he was chosen president of the Confederate States from the first his task was a difficult one and it grew increasingly so as the war went on that he performed it well there can be no question he was the government was practically dictator for he dominated the confederate congress absolutely and its principal business was to pass the laws which he prepared only towards the close of the war did it in a measure free itself from this control and finally in eighteen sixty five it passed a resolution attributing confederate disaster to davis's incompetency as commander-in-chief a position which he had insisted on occupying removing him from that position and conferring it upon general lee giving the latter at the same time unlimited powers in disposing of the army but it was too late even Lee himself could not ward off the inevitable. On the morning of Sunday, April 2, 1865, Jefferson Davis sat in his pew at church in the city of Richmond when an officer handed him a telegram. It was from Lee and read, Richmond must be evacuated this evening. Lee had fought and lost the Battle of Petersburg and was in full retreat. Davis left the church quietly, called his cabinet together, packed up the government archives, and boarded a train for the south. For over a month he moved from place to place, endeavoring to escape capture, his party melting away until it comprised only his family and a few servants. And finally, on May 9th, he was surprised and taken by a company of Union cavalry near Irwinsville, in southern Georgia. Davis was imprisoned at Fortress Monroe for two years, a thoroughly senseless procedure which only served to keep open a painful wound and on Christmas Day, 1868, was pardoned by President Johnson. Davis's imprisonment had added immensely to his prestige. The South forgot his blunders and shortcomings, seeing in him only the martyr who had suffered for his people, and welcomed him with a kind of hysterical adoration which lasted until his death. The last years of his life were passed quietly on his estate in Mississippi. When Davis was chosen President of the Confederacy, Alexander H. Stevens was chosen Vice President. Stevens had also had a picturesque career. Left an orphan, without means, at the age of fifteen, he had nevertheless secured an education, and in 1834, after two months' study, was admitted to the Georgia Bar. 
he at once began to win a more than local reputation for he was a man of unusual ability and in eighteen thirty six he was elected to the legislature though an avowed opponent of nullification seven years later he was sent to congress and continued to oppose the secession movement but he saw whither things were trending and in eighteen fifty nine he resigned from congress remarking that he knew there was going to be a smash-up and thought he would better get off while there was time in eighteen sixty he made a great union speech and it is a remarkable proof of the hold he had upon the people of the south that in spite of this and of his well-known convictions he was chosen vice-president of the confederacy a year later he accepted but within a year he had quarreled with jefferson davis on the question of state rights and in eighteen sixty four organized the georgia peace party from that time on to the close of the war he labored to bring about a treaty of peace but in vain he was imprisoned for a few months after the downfall of the confederacy but was soon released and was prominent in the political life of georgia for fifteen years thereafter being governor of the state at the time of his death in eighteen eighty three a more contradictory obstinate prickly conscienced man never appeared in american politics so passed the era of the civil war have we had any great statesmen since some near great ones perhaps but none of the very first rank great men are molded by great events or at least require great events to prove their greatness let us pause a moment however to pay tribute to one of the most accomplished party leaders in american history a man almost to rank with henry clay james g blaine as a young editor from maine he had entered congress in eighteen sixty three there he had encountered another fiery youngster in roscoe conkling and an intense rivalry sprang up between them they were very different in temperament blaine being the more popular conkling the more brilliant blaine had a genius for making friends and keeping them conkling's quick temper and hasty tongue frequently caused him his most powerful adherents three years later this rivalry came to an open clash in which each denounced the other on the floor of the house in words as stinging as parliamentary law permitted blaine's tirade was so bitter that conkling became an implacable enemy and never again spoke to him it was almost the story of hamilton and burr over again except that the age of dueling had passed that quarrel on the floor of the house was to have momentous consequences blaine became speaker of the house and the most popular and powerful man in his party so that it seemed that nothing could stand between him and the desire for the presidency which gnawed at his heart just as it had at henry clay's but always in the way stood conkling in eighteen seventy six at cincinnati blaine was nominated by robert g ingersoll in one of the most eloquent addresses ever delivered on the floor of a national convention and on the first ballot fell only a few votes short of a majority but his enemies were at work and on the seventh ballot succeeded in stampeding the convention to rutherford b hayes hayes however was pledged to a single term and blaine was hailed as a nominee in eighteen eighty but when the convention assembled there was conkling with a solid phalanx of over three hundred delegates for grant the result was that neither Blaine nor Grant could get a majority of the votes, and the nomination fell to Garfield. Finally, by tireless work, Blaine laid his plan so well that he secured the nomination four years later, only to have New York State thrown against him by Conkling and to go down to defeat. Conkling had his revenge, and Blaine's career was practically at an end, for he was an old and broken man.
Let us add frankly that there were many within his own party who mistrusted him, who believed him insincere, if not actually dishonest, and refused to support him. For a fourth time, in 1892, he attempted to get the nomination, but his name had lost its wizardry, and he was defeated by Benjamin Harrison. There are few more pitiful stories in American politics than that of this brilliant and able man, consumed by the desire for a great prize, which seemed always within his grasp, and yet which always eluded him. For a quarter of a century he chased this will-o'-the-wisp, only to be led by it into a bog and left to perish there. There are a few names on the later pages of American statesmanship which stand for notable achievement, more especially in the line of diplomacy, the two greatest of which are those of John Hay and Elihu Root. Both of these men, as Secretary of State, did memorable work, not the sort of work which appeals to popular imagination, for there was nothing spectacular about it, but quiet and effective work in the forming of informal alliances and treaties with foreign nations, maintaining America's position as a world power and making her the friend of all the world. That is the position she should occupy, since she has no quarrel with anyone, and it is with its maintenance that the statesmanship of the present day is principally concerned. So we close this chapter on American statesmen. It is a tragic chapter, tragic because of thwarted ambitions and unfulfilled desires. Of them all, Benjamin Franklin was the only one whose life was from first to last happy and contented, who realized his ideals and who died in peace. And this, I think, because he asked nothing for himself, hungered for no preferment, was consumed by no ambition, sacrificed nothing to expediency, but accepted life with large philosophy and never-failing humor, realizing that in serving others he was best serving himself, and whose inward peace was manifest in his placid and smiling countenance. Upon the rocks of ambition, the greatest of those who followed him dashed themselves to pieces. End of chapter 5, part 3. Recording by William Tomko.